hi there. I'm I'm not sure what to think. I'm sitting here all alone at the radio station. We just finished a show talking about vampire movies. The callers hung up. Lauren has disappeared. And uh, it's a little creepy. I gotta be honest. So I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can. But not before I invite you to come visit me at Judd's Hill Winery located at the south end of Silverado Trail here in Napa Valley. Amongst the beautiful verdant vines, we will show you a good time. I guarantee it. Visiting information is at judshill.com. And while you're online, you know, you can look around. We've got got a pretty cool website. Funny videos, events you got to check out, and you can put some wine in your cart. All the current releases are there. And as a thank you for being a valued listener... Type in coupon code JNVS for Judd's Napa Valley Show, and you'll get 15% off your entire wine order. If that's not enough, you can join our Judd's Hill Wine Club. All that information is also online. It's free to join. You get a chance to try all of our wines. You get special invitations to events and parties and all kinds of happenings, and you get an even better deal than that. Today's guest is Bob Cumbo. And Bob is a film buff. He's been writing about film and movies for more than 40 years. He teaches film courses, and he has taught vampire films at Seattle University. So we're continuing our Halloween theme with Vampire Film Talk with Bob Cumbo. Here we go. Everyone's a Finkel friend on Judd's Napa Valley Show. Get ready for another heapful of fascinating things to know From witty and intriguing people on Judd's Napa Valley Show No stale script and no rehearsing, live from a Napa studio You may be that intriguing person on Judd's Napa Valley Show On Judd's Napa Valley Show Judd's Napa, Judd's Napa Valley, Judd's Napa Valley Show Procrastination is the art of keeping up with yesterday. And now, live from the 1440 KVON Studios at Broadcast Park in the beautiful Napa Valley, it's Judd's Napa Valley Show. I'm Lauren Mole, and here's your host, Judd Finkelstein. Good morning, Lauren Mole. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Judd, top of the day. Top of the day. What is new in the world of Lauren? Well, my gosh, Jet, I've just been working a lot at Knob Hill these last few days. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing, right? Getting some hours. That's putting right. a little uh, paycheck in the bank account. Uh, actually, yes. Actually, good. Glad to hear. And things are good. You always enjoy uh, seeing all the folks that come by. I know a lot of people know you now as uh, Lauren Mole, Mr. Napa Valley TV and Radio. That's right. That's right. Well, good. Thanks. And uh, also... Well, we're we're gearing up to do some uh, gearing up to do some singing events with Cindy Skinner at the and the Napa Valley Voices this coming December, December eighth through the fifteenth. We're performing at restaurants and uh, retirement homes. Very good. Will you let us know as that gets a little closer if there's opportunity for some of the listeners, some of your fans, to come out and see you? Uh, actually, I think these might be private events. Jeff. Oh boy, plug in those private events. Okay, well, I'm so sorry. So you'll let us know when they are, so we can sneak in and crash the party. Well, that I could, but also uh, Judd. <laughs> I hate yeah. to say this, but I have what? a confession to make. Uh-oh. For the first time since 2012, 
since Kelly Fuller left the morning show at KVYN, yeah. I've been offered a volunteer voiceover position there. Have you really? Wow, that's great. Yes, yeah, so, so now you'll hear me at 10 a.m. every Friday uh, with Big Rick Stewart for the 10 at 10 on the Vine. Great. Oh, that's very exciting. The new feature. Fantastic. Looking forward to hearing you. Oh, thanks. So, uh, so what's been going on with you, Judd? Well, I'm going to quickly tell you what's going on because we have got a caller on the line. I really hope we were having a few issues uh, before we went on the air, but hopefully our caller is there. But I want to let folks know that uh, some fun things coming up. You know, first, I want to start with a quote. This is something that our frequent guest, Dr. Alan Steen, has brought up about the importance of travel. And he, he talks about how travel breaks down, you know, barriers to, to just to life. It gives you perspective. It gets you to meet people, see what other cultures are like, give you an appreciation. And he often quoted Mark Twain. So I went and found the full quote. And Mark Twain, in Innocence Abroad, wrote, Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Oh, that's and, interesting. And I couldn't agree more. It is so important to break out of the little bubbles that we impose ourselves into to get a little perspective. And whether that means traveling internationally or just doing things you wouldn't normally do just right around here. You know, check out a cultural festival, see a museum, go to a restaurant uh, that serves a type of food you wouldn't normally like. I, I, I'm not going to get up on a soapbox, but I think it's so important to just get out and gain some perspective. So I'm going to give a, a couple things. Coming up sure. to get out of one's perspective. One is uh, my own band, the Mike High Gents, is playing at Trader Vic's Sunday. It's a brunch, Sunday, November 4th. So for those of you who have never been to a tiki-style event, this would be a great way to experience that, as there are going to be two rooms full of vendors with you know artists, ceramics, aloha ware, wood carving, and it's called the Bazaar Brunch. Bazaar, like a marketplace. And again, that will be at Trader Vic's in Emeryville, Sunday, November 4th. And my band is playing in the lounge from 11 till 2, our old-time Hawaiian music. If you'd like to make a reservation, there's no cover charge, but if you want to make sure you have a seat, call Trader Vic's at 510-653-3400. Then another event coming up actually sooner, this very coming Saturday, which is a great chance for people well, in and out of the community to gain a little perspective on, on something. It's a Jewish vintner's. An evening of Jewish vintners, sponsored by the synagogue here in town, Congregation Beth Shalom. And you don't have to be Jewish to come enjoy this. There are going to be 16 different vintners. Dinner by Chef... Uh, where, I had it written down. Where is it? I should know it. Oh, D- David Nafield. That's who it is from, from San Francisco. And Itamar Abramovich as well, former guest who headed up the effort to feed the fire victims and first responders last year. We'll be cooking. There will be a walk-around tasting. That's, again, this coming Saturday, October 27th. The walk-around tasting is from 4 to 6. Dinner from 6.30 to 9.30. As I said, 16 different vintners. Cheese curated. That's the word of the day, curated. By another former guest, Janet Fletcher. Music by Jealous Zelig. It's going to be a great time if anybody's interested in experiencing that. Go to the website, cbsnapa.com. Dot org, And then, of course, I invite folks to come to Judd's Hill and visit me. Still, the number one thing to do on TripAdvisor when you're in Napa Valley is visit Judd's Hill. And I couldn't be more proud 
of the customer experience we have put together, the hospitality, and of course, the quality of the wines. That's what I've got to say, but we've got a great guest. Fingers crossed he is on the line, and we're going to give him an introduction right now, and then I guess we'll find out for sure if he's on the line. And Lauren, would you do the honors? This instructor don't teach round no campfire, and it's feared that his final exam's dire. But Bob Cumbow's subject cinematic keeps the audience squirming and not static, because he's known as Professor Vampire. Professor Vampire. Bob Cumbo, are you there on the line, sir? I am. Okay, good. We can hear you. At least I could hear you. And Bob, you are joining us. You're calling in from the beautiful city of Seattle, Washington. How are, how are things up there? I can't tell. It's so foggy. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, that, that's perfect. That sets the scene for what we're going to talk about, the little gloominess. We called you Professor Vampire in the introduction. You are, you are a man who writes film, film critique, film appreciation, and you even teach courses and have taught courses at Seattle University. You've taught about Westerns, uh, horror movies, Stanley Kubrick, but you also have designed a course in the vampire film. So that's what we're really going to focus on today. Right. And I think all of, the, all of this in addition to my day job, which you know about. We, and I think I'll give that as well. You know, I, I have, we have worked together because, Bob, this is Judd's Napa Valley show, and you're calling in from Seattle. But you do have a connection here. You and I have worked together for the better part of 20 years. You are a renowned trademark attorney, and you, um, well, you work with us, and you work within the wine industry and uh, some other entities here in Napa Valley. So you're no stranger to this area and what we do here. But I only found out about this other side of you just in the last couple of years that you are this, well, a film buff from way back. And for 40 so years, apparently, have been, uh, not apparently, I've, I've seen proof, I've seen some of your writings, have been immersed in the world of film, film appreciation, and uh, critique. That. That's correct. How, how did you get on this line? Was this something you picked up while in law school? Did this predate your uh, law career? Predate definitely. Back, give us a little background on your life in film, and then we're going to pop into vampires. Uh, I don't know that I ever had a life in film. I had a life in movies <laughs> and okay. watching watching movies. All right. And I I don't know. I get asked this question a lot. How did you get into movies? I've always been into movies, and I think it's because I grew up in the army. My dad was an army officer, and uh, we moved from army base to army base, and army bases tended in those days, and maybe still do, have lots of movie theaters. Uh-huh, yes. And lots of movies keep moving through those theaters. It's not like a downtown theater where the same thing is playing for three weeks. You would see a movie on Sunday and Monday, and then a new one on Tuesday, and then a new one on Wednesday, Thursday, oh, and then okay. a new one on Friday, and a new one on Saturday. You could ideally see six movies a week, and uh, there wasn't a lot else to do on Army bases. There was the swimming pool, and there was, uh, you know, this and that, uh, the library and so on. But the thing that I loved to do most uh, with my friends, my other military-dependent friends, was go to movies, and I just got used to seeing a lot of movies and uh, learning about them, and they became part of the fabric of my consciousness, for better or worse. Well, you know, I always enjoyed talking with you uh, on legal issues, which sounds fun. And my interactions with other attorneys I work with, it's not always a fun conversation, but for some reason there was this air about you, and even though I didn't know you were this movie guy, I felt we were connecting on some level, and then it all made sense once I realized 
ah, we're on the same page because when we talked about movies, we really seem to enjoy a lot of the same things. So to give the listeners, if they haven't been listening all month, last year we did not get to do a Halloween show. Lauren and I were in emergency broadcasting mode because of the fires, and we always enjoyed doing our Halloween shows in the past. So we decided this month, every show is a Halloween show. So I reached out to you, Bob, so we could talk about vampire films. And you had designed a course that you've taught at Seattle University um, all about the vampire films. So I thought, let's talk about them. Let's get into this. Uh, you sent me the syllabus, and it's really quite amazing. Uh, beyond the the writing requirements that you have of your students, there are films, required films, and there are 22 different films that you are requiring your students to watch. So I want to talk about some of them. I've seen many of them uh, since since we decided to do this. I've, I tried to look up a few, and I'm excited. I I've, Sounds odd, but I, I enjoy The Vampire. I like a good vampire film. To me, those are the kind of the... The vampire to me represents sort of the uh, the pinnacle of the movie monster, and let's we can get into why that is in a little bit. But what what inspired you about vampires to put a whole course together? Wow, um, good question. First, I wanted to to point out on what you were just saying that the uh, syllabus that I sent you was from the second time I taught vampires, and I uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but that syllabus significantly does not include the film Twilight or Uh, anything from the Twilight series. First time I taught vampire film, I said to myself it would be irresponsible to teach a course in the vampire movie and not include Twilight because it's such a huge phenomenon. Right. By the second time I taught vampire film, a couple years later, the backlash had set in, everybody was sick and tired of Twilight, (laughs) and I figured this was a good opportunity to leave it out of the course. And what I did instead was I assigned a number of special projects. I invited the class to break themselves up into groups and each one take on a special project. And one of those special projects was the Twilight series. Mm. And so we had a 20-minute presentation on the Twilight series instead of watching and talking about Twilight. Well, Twilight, um, Twilight's so, a big but target. I, I, I wanted to yeah. tell you that because you said you looked at the syllabus and you wanted to talk about some of the films. Please feel free to talk about some of the films that are not there as well. Okay, very good. Well, you can bring them up too. I am curious about how you set this up. It, you know, it starts, it, it's in chronological order and it starts in 1922 with the classic, really one of my favorite films, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, which which predates, I think, would you, would you call this the first significant vampire on film? Absolutely. Is that, is that why that's um, number one? Nosferatu is the first important movie vampire. There were a lot of little movies uh, of so-and-so the vampire and, and, then, and uh, that sort of thing. But Nosferatu was the first big one. And Nosferatu was actually, which most people who have read the literature know, was actually a uh, a version of Dracula. and Not just a version it. of Dracula, but basically it was so close to the original that they they didn't get a chance to make another movie for fear of getting sued. Isn't that correct? That's correct. They, um, uh, they actually wanted to make Dracula, and they couldn't get the approval of, uh, of the Bram Stoker estate, 
And uh, so th- what they did was they just changed some changed some names. Count Dracula became Count Orlock, and each one of the characters still had a similar name, but they were different names. And little parts of the plot were tweaked here and there, but fundamentally it's still the same story, and the Stoker estate still sued them. So they had, uh, they had some problems. And unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to see. I would have loved to have seen some follow-ups through here, but they they closed down the studio. And did Murnau do many more films? I I actually don't know what happened to him after. Murnau did many more films. He did. Murnau okay. went to Hollywood, oh. uh, where he uh, he directed one of the greatest films ever made, uh, an American classic called uh, Sunrise. Uh, oh. Gorgeous gorgeous silent film and it is sort of a version of theodore dreiser's american tragedy but i think murnau is one of the most forgotten formative directors of uh, of motion picture art he is just amazing every time i look at a murnau film i think why is this guy not on everybody's lips right up there with hitchcock and uh, dw griffith well, and john ford and well so thanks on. for educating me I, I i'm going to look for some of these i was so impressed with nosferatu i rewatched i remember watching it as a as a teen for the first time and being pretty creeped out and revisited it last year around halloween time watched it straight through and f- again for a silent film no dialogue it it's a it's a scary movie it got to me it, it, yeah, Murnau was very, very good with creepy. He also did a film of um, of Faust, yeah, Dentist Faust, and it's amazingly spooky. Ooh, okay, definitely we'll look for that one. Moving along chronologically, I, you you can steer this as well, but um, well, let's let's stay with Nosferatu for a moment, okay, because sure. I know that one of the things you're particularly interested in that you mentioned to me outside of outside of this interview is how the image of the vampire changed. So I'd yes. like to say a little bit about the image that we're given of the vampire in Nosferatu. Let us and that is he's sort of a personification of disease. Mm-hmm. When he arrives in uh, the, the, the little town that he ends up virtually destroying, he is accompanied by lots and lots of rats. That's right. And so it's sort of a symbol of disease, but it, it also, he has a rat-like face himself, and, and, and longer fangs than we usually see in vampires, uh, but we're accustomed to the more romantic vampires, Bela Lugosi and Christopher Lee and Frank Langella, but Max Schreck, a very mysterious character who played this role, was just hideously uh, frightening in uh, visually, and was emblematic of the vampire as a corrupter of human beings, of human society, and an evil that must be destroyed. Mm. And I wanted to emphasize that because that's where the movie Vampire starts. That's that's the beginning of the of our perception of the vampire that it's something evil and we've got to stomp it out. Well then let's not go movie by movie. Let's go through the evolution and you can bring up examples because it starts as this as you say this uh this monster who symbolizes plague, pestilence, disease and does make this evolution in, into popular culture to become somewhat of a romantic, uh, a bit of a sex symbol at times. And then when you get to Twilight, sort of the, uh, the sullen teen. Do you want to talk about how uh, this progressed throughout Movie Dim? I, this is your show. I want you to 
give us a little <laughs> bit of the combo vampire treatment with some specific examples of movies along the way so people can do their uh, Halloween viewing. Well, the way they evolve is very interesting. And, of course, with any film genre, the genre actually uh, is more indicative of the time in which the film was made mm. and the audiences for which the films were made than it is of the time that it's about. So, uh, for the Westerns are the, are the most obvious example. Westerns usually take place somewhere between 1840 and, uh, and 1900, um, but they're never about American history. They're never about the reality of the Old West. They're about a mythology that can be um, molded like clay and used to uh, present stories to different generations of people for different reasons. Okay. So the Westerns have different agendas from one generation to the next. So does the vampire film. So after Nosferatu, uh, of course, Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula, was a sensation and remained a sensation and became a stage play during the 20s. And the uh, star of that stage play was this barely known Hungarian actor, Bela Lugosi, who so absorbed the part of Dracula and what we think of as the, the vampire that he had to be in the movie as well. And that started his somewhat tragic movie career. But Lugosi is this suave, urbane, Hungarian or Romanian, in the case of the vampire, count, He's nobility, and he has he has manners, and he has a style that suggests elegance. But he lives in this stone castle with dirt and rats running around, and of course he seriously drinks people's blood. And so there's there's a kind of a romantic appeal about him. At the same time, it's a fatal romanticism. He's, mm, mm. He the so the the classic vampire figure is not really Nosferatu. It's the Lugosi Dracula, the um, the the polished uh, noble who has a deep dark secret that he tries to hide from others, but. It's also an urge that he's got that he has to fulfill, and sooner or later, the vampire hunters are going to catch up with him. Right, and so I... the vampire hunter becomes kind of an important figure okay. uh, in those early, early Universal Dracula films, and we keep this attitude uh, uh, toward the vampire of of elegant nobility with a nasty, dangerous sense underlying. And by the way, that's, uh, that's why uh, the vampire film, at least for a long time, is about class, as well as being about vampires and evil and human beings and all the other things that it's about. It's also about class. For yeah, decades, the vampire okay. is always a figure of nobility. Right up until the mid-60s, you've still got vampires who are figures of nobility. The, the, the vampire in um, Roman Polanski's uh, The Fearless Vampire Killers, 1966, is, is also a count. And he has all of these elegant friends, and he has a big party. Actually, the original title of the film, and a better title in my mind, it was Dance of the Vampires. And it's a big ball that the vampires are having, into which come 
these vampire hunters who are a, a sort of a comic duo that don't do anything quite right and end up bringing vampirism back into the world with them <laughs> instead of destroying the vampires. But anyway, this notion of the, uh, the class uh, that a vampire has kind of sticks with us. Yeah, and I would and, like to mention that the, there's a, you know, a famous series of vampire movies done by the uh, Hammer Studios, the Hammer Horror Series. We pretty much shot Christopher Lee to stardom. And the, the one that kicks it off, Horror of Dracula, from the late 50s, 57, 58. 57. Uh, 57. It's, it's I, I almost wish they had spent a little more time, as much as I really like that movie, and I would recommend anybody who likes vampire movies and the story of Dracula. It's a great movie, great film. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, phenomenal. I just wish there was a little more exposition at the beginning to really build up that character of Dracula as this noble man of class. They show him in the castle. They have him hire, you know, who else would hire a librarian to come work for him? So they give you some hints, but but I just wish there was a slightly more development of that character and then off to the races. And yeah, I just wish there was really a little more Dracula in general in that movie. I, he he's almost becomes like the protagonist, like they're looking for him, but you know, I, I'd like to see him a little more. But that's exactly. me. Exactly. And this, me. this is the way the image of the vampire changes. Christopher Lee is even sexier and more alluring than Bela Lugosi was in his day. And the women in the film go for him. Oh, boy, and do they. they're all too eager to be seduced by him. Uh, he doesn't have to work too hard to be a vampire. No, there, there's, and, it's amazing. Um, there's, no, there's no resistance. And the movie is only 81 minutes long, which is probably why uh, you sense some background lacking. And mm-hmm. I think they made it the way they made it, because it's not the Dracula story. It's the same characters, but in a, in a, in a very different sort of plot. Right, right. Um, but I think they assumed that by the time they came out with Horror of Dracula in 57, that everybody knew the basic plot of Dracula and the basic background of the vampire, and that might not have been a safe assumption. There were also things that they couldn't do because of Universal's rights in the previous Lugosi series of vampire films, and so uh, they had to be cautious. Uh, At the same time, Stoker's novel was by now in the public domain, so they could do anything they wanted with those characters, and that's what they did. And interestingly enough, there is a sense in which horror of Dracula is not just a vampire film, but also a vampire hunter film. We're really, really interested in Cushing. Oh, yeah, he's a great uh, character. character, Van Helsing. And he's after Dracula from the very beginning, whereas in the classic Dracula story, Van Helsing doesn't appear until sometime along the way uh, when he tells people, this thing that you're worried about, this is real. This is not some old myth or superstition. This is a real thing, and it's happening to us. Now, if you guys want to get on board and help me destroy it, let's go to work. <laughs> and that's the kind of vampire hunter we get during the, uh, during the 50s and 60s. And the vampire hunters are kind of on balance with the vampires themselves as being interesting figures, okay. interesting characters. Hold that thought. Um, Hold that thought, Bob, because we... Unfortunately, on the radio, we got to pay some bills. We got to take a quick break, just a couple minutes, but let's come back and talk how the vampire hunters come to the same level as the vampires themselves, shall we? Fine. Okay, Lauren. You're listening to Judd's Napa Valley Show. We'll be right back after these messages.
Judd's Napa Valley Show. Every episode, a veritable cornucopia of finkel fun. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. Judd's Napa Valley Show. You're listening to 1440 KVON, the voice of Napa Valley. Now, back to Judd's Napa Valley Show. Thank you, Lauren Mole. And on the phone joining us from Seattle, Washington, is Bob Cumbo, who, among many other talents, has taught a course in vampire films at Seattle University. So we're talking vampires. And Bob, we left off before the break with talking about vampire hunters and vampires kind of sharing the starring role. So you want to continue on that tack? Absolutely. Uh, one of the films, one of the, probably the least known film in my syllabus, about a film that I love teaching, is a film by Brian Clemens from 1974 called Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. Mm. And uh, it's a fascinating film because the vampire hunter is the main character. And it's kind of like a Western almost, but it, take, it takes place in classic 18th, uh, 19th century Britain. And the vampires don't suck blood, they suck life. And there's a very scary, scary beginning in which a young woman is attacked and ages in just moments before your eyes and crumbles uh horrible uh horrible uh, image but this vampire family is again a part of the nobility they live in a castle outside the town and this has come to the attention of captain chronos and he comes to town with his assistant and they go about bringing down the family of vampires it's the only film that i know of where the vampire hunter is actually the primary character in most of them uh, the vampire films of of this era 1930s through through the 70s uh the vampire hunter and the vampire himself are equal or the vampire is the more interesting character. We got into this as we were talking about the evolution of the vampire himself, however, so I want to mention a couple of more landmarks in our changing perception of the vampire. One of the big ones is 1977. George Romero, famous for six zombie movies, also made a vampire movie, and it's called Martin. It's an excellent, excellent film, and it's about a teenager who, throughout the entire film, you don't know, is he really a vampire, or does he just think he's a vampire, and so he does the things that vampires do, and he's afraid Uh of the things that vampires are afraid of, but we don't know, is he actually having a, a psychological condition rather than being physically a vampire, and that ambiguity is maintained throughout the whole thing, and it's a generational kind of thing, too, because his his grandfather, whom he lives with, believes that the kid is, is a vampire. Does the this kid have... believes okay. most of the time that he's a vampire, but uh, what we believe is always kind of up in the air. So is this a little more film and psychological? Years before Twilight, thirty years before Twilight, and is this more psychological? I think George Romero, you know, he puts a lot of uh, gore in your face if you watch Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and so on. 
and this is between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. So how does this figure stylistically in his repertoire? It's it's very different. There's um uh, it's it's in a uh, a very subdued sort of color with black and white flashbacks interlaced, mm. and um and the the black and white flashbacks are. Uh, memories that this kid thinks he has because he thinks he's an eternal vampire uh, and and it deals with the classical lugosi mode of vampirism that this kid is trying to recreate but it's not working okay. um there's of of special interest to this show in your audience there's a radio talk show tracking the vampire they call him the count uh, this mysterious vampire killer. Who is this teenage kid, actually? <laughs> and all of these people are phoning into the radio station saying, I think I know who the Count is. <laughs> and it's, 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 a, it's a fun movie, but it's a very disturbing movie, and it's a revolutionary movie for its time. And that's called Martin. That's called Martin, yes. Oh. And it's a revolutionary movie for its time because two years later, John Badham makes Dracula the first big remake of Dracula since the Hammer films of the 50s with Frank Langella. Yes. And Frank Langella is even sexier than Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi ever dreamed of. <laughs> uh, and Frank Langella has his, uh, um, uh, under his cape, bare chest, and <laughs> cape is, his shirt is always unbuttoned down to the navel, and um, uh, <laughs> at the time this movie came out, women were swooning for Frank Langella. Yeah, did you take your wife Dracula. to this? And this was a big turn in the image of the screen vampire, because he was this really seductive, romantic figure whom audiences cared about more than they cared about the vampire hunters. And the vampire hunters end up uh, uh, being somewhat less successful in this film. And uh, whether the ending means that the vampire survives or not is also a bit of ambiguity. But uh, there's no question at all that the audience's sympathies are mostly with the vampire just because he's so gorgeous. And um, to, after that, we well, get. Can I can I stop just for a second? I'm curious. You were talking about uh, speaking to a generation, and there is a film on here that aesthetically and the music is pretty incredible too. It's a, it's a French film. It goes out of what the Americans do with with vampires, but it's the Shiver of the Vampire, and I I'm I'm not sure. I let myself go with this movie or I totally understood what was going on. But what I did really enjoy was the fact that I felt like I was in 1971 in France and the fashions were really groovy and there was this kind of psychedelic acid rock and roll going on in the background throughout this just very strange few days in a castle where uh, all kinds of seductions take place. And I'm curious why you put that into your syllabus. It's like classic vampire culture meets hippie culture. It's yeah. a really, really interesting film. I put it into my sequence because Jean Rollin is a really, really interesting figure. And from the late That's 60s the director of this film. Through, yes, yeah. uh, the director of Shiver the Vampire. He made a whole cycle of these... I shouldn't say cycle because the films aren't connected to one another. They don't have the same characters. But every time you made a movie, it was another erotic vampire movie. And these were erotic movies. They had 
they uh, they were not bashful about nudity, but they weren't vampire porn either. They were vampire movies in which Roland satirized uh, in a dark, su- darkly subtle way uh, the, the the changing norms of his time, including hippie culture, including uh, the sexual revolution, including the changing view of class tensions, because his vampires are still generally upper-class people, yeah. and uh, they're trying to preserve a way of life that for them is eternal, but different Different generations have come and gone and done different things to them and made them feel differently. Uh, so it's almost like vampirism is a club that has to unite and protect itself. And that particular theme uh, actually is echoed in 2012 in Neil Jordan's Byzantium, which is my very favorite vampire movie, but we'll get there. We'll get there, um, but we're going to have to... And I'm glad you mentioned what you just did about Shiver the Vampire, because now I see it in a whole different perspective, and I thank you for that. So we've got about 10 minutes of talk time left uh, just to give you a guide. If you are available, we can keep talking for a few more minutes. Uh, We'll have to go off the air, but we can keep recording for extra podcast content. That's up to you because I'm fascinated by all this. But let's let's keep going with the time that we've got. We were at Dracula 1979, talking about the evolution of the vampire character through cinema. Where would you go next? Okay, well, uh, the, so Frank Langella is the, the pinnacle of the on-screen romantic, fatally seductive vampire. That same year, interestingly enough, Werner Herzog, the German director, remade Nosferatu, and it's a very, very close remake, only it's much, much more cynical mm. and frightening for 1979 than for the 1922 uh, Nosferatu, but that was Klaus Kinski, and that kind of went back to the old original image. But another one that was um, attractive at the time was The Hunger, made by Tony Scott, Ridley's smarter brother, um, <laughs> uh, that uh, in which Catherine Deneuve is a, an eternal vampire, who um, in the beginning is with... David Bowie, but David Bowie is aging. She doesn't age. Mm. And he's soon out of her life, and she seduces Susan Sarandon. And it's a really, really sexy and erotic vampire film, <laughs> but the eroticism is, is, is female, uh, f- uh, female to female. And so that brings a new dimension to the female vampire. But uh, moving quickly along, Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's uh, first big feature hit of 1987, is a bunch of hillbillies who drive around in a camper who are vampires. Really, really different idea of vampires. And here, suddenly, vampires are common folk. They're ordinary people. And so vampirism is something that could happen to anybody. And the main character of the film is a farm boy who just happens to uh, hit up the wrong girl and becomes one of these vampires. Mm. And fascinating film. Really, really good film. Two years after that, Robert Bierman makes Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage. And Nicolas Cage is more in the tone of Martin. He's a guy who has a has a fight with a bat in his apartment in New York early in the film and believes he's been bitten and is certain he's becoming a vampire and he's having hallucinations and um, 
like Martin, this film sustains the ambiguity. Is he a vampire? Or is he just a vampire wannabe? Or is he having a breakdown of some sort? Um, it's uh, Nick Cage at his uh, out-of-control best. Um, <laughs> okay. um, I... Then Francis Coppola in 1992 makes Stoker's Dracula again. And this time with Gary Oldman, and what is the movie about? It's about an eternal love. It's Dracula has a purpose on Earth. He's not just surviving. He's trying to find his lost love, whom he's sure has been or will be reincarnated at some time, in some place, in some part of eternity, and they'll be together again. Fascinating, daring thing, and a really richly Baroque-looking film. Yes, um, I remember it well. But I want to keep moving with this evolution, because it keeps happening. Of course, the next big landmark is Interview with the Vampire in uh, 1994. Neil Jordan, the Irish director, makes this film, and the vampires at this point, both men and women, have become really, really pretty. We've got Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, and... Oh, my God, it's just, this is an echo of the high-class, noble, uh, luscious, seductive, good-looking, attractive vampire. But the difference is, we're seeing things from the vampire's point of view. The vampire we're, we're discovering is somebody to be understood and sympathized with. Poor baby, he's a vampire, he can't help it. And this becomes the prevailing attitude about the screen vampire. And a lone voice, we're in the 1990s now, a lone voice in the, in the 1990s is the voice of John Carpenter, who is always kind of a reactionary when it comes to evil. Carpenter's position is evil never dies, and it has to be destroyed repeatedly because it keeps coming back. Vampires are not poor, misunderstood uh, human beings. They are monsters. They are evil, and we got to kill them. So what does he do in vampires? Once again, the vampire hunters become front and center, and James Woods is the meanest badass vampire hunter in vampire film ever. Um, but vampires failed utterly as a film because it didn't, uh, it didn't show people the vampire that they wanted, the vampire that they were attracted to, and that was just about to be embodied for teenagers in the Twilight Saga. Uh-huh. Here um, it comes. So then we have the, uh, the era of Twilight, and in that era we also have such interesting films as Let the Right One In, Byzantium, and more recently, Only Lovers Left Alive and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, in all of which the vampire is, if not the lead figure, at least a sympathetic figure, and not only someone who must be understood and sympathized with and appreciated, but someone who becomes an important part of the human race, a protector, a fighter against evil, rather than a bringer of evil. So we've gone completely around the circle since Nosferatu. That is something. And those last couple you mentioned, let's say them once again, I haven't seen them, but I want to make sure that I, I write them down. I'm taking notes. Only Lovers hey, Left Alive by Only Jim Jarmusch. Only Lovers Left Alive is a Jim Jarmusch film, mm -hmm. and it's about a vampire couple that is eternal. They've been living since somewhere in the 
somewhere before Egypt. <laughs> I don't okay, know. Okay, long time. But in this film, and it's it, being a Jim Jarmusch film, it's sort of tongue in cheek and very, very good film. Tilda Swinton is the the main uh, female vampire. Uh. It is kind of a satire on vampire films, but it's also it also dares to portray the vampire as a preserver of culture because these people have these vampires have lived through era after era after era. They're saving what is best, and the 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 woman vampire uh, the. the uh, Tilda Swinton is saving literature, and um, Tom Hiddleston is saving music. And he's creating new music, but he can't put it out there because he has to live this private, secluded life because he's a vampire. Mm. And so he has other people who get his music out there for him. And they're, so they're kind of rejuvenating culture. Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is an Iranian-American vampire film. Actually, Anna Lily Amirpour is completely American, born in California, but she made this film set in some nondescript place that could as easily be part of Tehran as part of Los Angeles. And um, and to put it briefly, the girl who walks home alone at night, who is the vampire in this, actually only attacks evil people. Oh, and she is kind of saving the world from the bad people. Wow. Wow. Okay, so, those are going on the list. <laughs> but the one that should be at the top of your list is Byzantium, and I think we probably don't have enough time for me to say how much I love Byzantium and why. If but, you've uh, got about one minute, I'll take okay, the summary. I will say then just briefly, Byzantium is an amazing film by Neil Jordan, an Irish director. He makes what is, to my mind, the definitive vampire film. It touches all of the great themes of vampirism, and it manages to be about Britain's subjection of Ireland, the upper class's subjection of the lower class, men's subjection of women, and vampires. Wow. And and it all goes together amazingly well. It's beautiful. It's also got a very... Uh, William Butler Yeats poetry feel to it. Yeah, I would imagine. As uh, you might guess from the title. Exactly. I can't believe how quickly this has gone by for me. I, I would go on another hour or two talking to you about this and getting a little more into some um, vampire talk, but this has been great for me. I've got some, I've got a, I've got a viewing list. Hopefully some of our listeners will appreciate. And we've been talking to Bob Cumbo, who is a, a film writer and a, an attorney <laughs> and a teacher, as we called him earlier, Professor Vampire. And we were talking about some of the movies that he teaches in his uh, course. What is the name of the course at Seattle University? Is it just... Uh, well, it, it's a course that I taught. Taught. I, uh, I don't teach it currently. Okay. But I well, just ca- I called this particular course Vampire Films. Vampire, vampire Films. Movies, one or the other. And if you would like, you can look up some of his books available to Amazon or booksellers. He's got The Films of Sergio Leone. Another one called Order in the Universe, The Films of John Carpenter, Bob Cumbo. Thanks very much, and I'm going to go out and watch some vampire movies. Thank you, Judd. It's been a pleasure talking with you. All right. Take care, sir. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Judd's Napa Valley Show is a Gillamar production. 